Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Clinton Young, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas at Monticello, to discuss zarzuela, Spain's famous genre of musical theater from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We will be considering how zarzuela changed over time as Spain underwent processes of modernization and nationalization. As discussed in Professor Young's recent book, Music Theater and Popular Nationalism in Spain, 1880-1930. We'll also be analyzing a few clips from some famous zarzuelas along the way. So Clint, welcome to the program. Thanks, it's great to be here. Okay, so I thought we could start by um, just talking about some of the basics. So what is zarzuela exactly, and uh, what are the origins of the genre? Well, zarzuela is kind of a, it, it's a catch-all term like musical comedy here in America, right, which can mean lots of different things. But basically, zarzuela is a musical theater piece that uses dialogue, right? It's not through sung like an opera, for example, um, but the pieces are broken up with, again, dialogue sections in between each one. Uh, the Spanish themselves date uh, the beginnings of zarzuela back to the 1650s, when it was actually originally an adaptation of Italian opera, which was itself fairly new at the time, performed at the royal court. Um, and some of these would have been, in fact, performed at the summer palace that the Habsburgs had, the Palacio de la Zarzuela, just to the northwest of Madrid, mm -hmm. hence the name, right, Zarzuela, that's where it comes from. Eventually, this would, uh, these Zarzuelos would move into the public theaters in the 18th century, uh, where they would be less about mythology the way they had been in the 17th century and more about daily life, the way people lived, what they did on the streets. Zarzuela kind of under, then underwent an eclipse at the beginning of the 19th century as the romantic operas of Rossini and Bellini and Donizetti became very, very popular in Spain, played in all the major theaters, kind of eclipsed Zarzuela for about half a century. But in the late 1840s, Spanish composers who were looking to sort of make uh, you know, new musical statements, wanting to do new things, revived the genre of Zarzuela and basically, this is the beginning of the modern zarzuela, right? Uh, usually the first piece that the Spanish will point to as being sort of the first modern, modern work is uh, Francisco Ansejo Barbieri's Jugar con Fuego, playing with fire in 1851. Um, and then after that, for the next 30, 40 years, there would be this sort of large-scale romantic zarzuela that really, to all intents and purposes, sounds very much like Italian opera of the period, right? I, I listen to Barbieri and I can hear echoes of Verdi, of Mercadante, of the other great Italian composers of the 40s and 50s. And so that is sort of where the genre begins to be revived. Um, the other real great sort of uh, moment in the history of Zarzuela early on is the building and opening in 18... 1956 of the Teatro de la Zarzuela. They actually built a unique theater for it. Still exists today. A lot of fun if you ever get a chance to go. Uh, that was basically designed almost uh, as a sort of an antipode to the Teatro Real, the main opera house in Madrid. So on one end of town you had opera. On the other end of town you had this new genre, Zarzuela, which was aimed to be popular. Um, in particular, by the 1850s, composers like Barbieri, like um, Emilio Arrieta, some of the others, were beginning to incorporate Spanish folk music into what they're doing, usually for the chorus. So there's this idea that the chorus represents the people of Spain. 
And again, it targeted itself to what was then a largely middle-class audience, looking an audience that was not the haut monde of Madrid that was off going off to the opera, right? right. And so that's sort of the origins of Sarsuela. That's where things begin. Let's go ahead and listen to a selection from one of these early sarsuelas from the mid-19th century to get a sense of that. Okay, so that 
clip that we just listened to, can you tell us a little bit about it, how um, it might dip, differ from opera or light opera that we might hear in other countries? Well, I'm not actually sure it would differ all that much, and that's kind of what makes it interesting. I mean, it's very much that sort of uh, lush, romantic music that we associate with Italian opera, especially of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, you know, Verdi, Poncelli, those, those, those sorts of composers. Um, it does differ a little bit from the stuff we're probably more, uh, your American audiences are a little more accustomed to. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan obviously tends to be much more satirical, much more lighter touch, more of an emphasis on the words rather than on the music. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit about the kind of audience that's consuming this music, an urban working class audience, but can you tell us uh, a little bit more about that and why it emerged in uh, in Spain in particular? Yeah, well really, um, again, when you look at the audience probably from the 1850s really up to about 1900, it's very heavily a middle class audience. I'm not... Mm -hmm. Now the, the working classes might have heard some of this on the streets because the, the main tunes of the day would have been played by street musicians, uh, organ grinders, things like that. They would have heard uh, them played by military bands. Right? So there are many more places to hear Tarthuela music than just inside the theater. And, and by the end of the century, theaters in the working class districts would have been picking up and performing some of these works as well. But in many ways, what this is, is because Spain's middle class is very slowly but surely growing during the 19th century. Um, and this is sort of their way of saying, we have a unique culture. It's not this sort of imposed culture of opera because uh, the royal court was very much tied up with Italian opera. Um, the crown subsidized the Teatro Real. They did not subsidize Arthuela. So it's a way of saying, hey, this is our stuff. We're not having any of this foreign music being imposed upon us. Mm. And this is where I begin to make the argument, of course, that this is based on a sense of national identity. You can begin to see it here within the Sarthuelas. And again, like most movements, it sort of begins and moves down from the middle classes toward the working classes, but it's there. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about how these Sarthuelas are tied up uh, with the politics of the mid-19th century and this uh, nationalization process? Really, the main change when Tharthuela becomes, uh, it had always been a little bit political, right? As I'd mentioned, there's this idea that the chorus is the people of Spain. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at a lot of the plots of the 1850s and 60s, they're all about sort of the conflict between the aristocracy and the other classes. But where Tharthuela really begins to turn political is uh, beginning in the late 1860s. You know, as, as people familiar with Spanish history will know, there is a revolution in 1868 that overthrows the Bourbon monarchy. Um, there is then a six-year period of revolutionary utter chaos <laughs> that yeah. ensues. During those six years, the theater in Spain changes drastically. What happens is that some of the smaller cafes in Madrid begin experimenting with new ways of charging customers. Um, and what begins to develop after 1868 is a, is a theatrical system that the Spanish called the Teatro por Horas, Theater by Hours. And what would happen is theaters would, rather than staging one play or one work a night, they would stage three or four one-act plays, charge admission for each one, and you could sort of pick and choose and bounce around from theater to theater as an audience member. Prices were lower, but theaters actually made more money because, of course, they've got four shows going in and out at all times. 
Um, it's a huge success. It dominates the Spanish theatrical scene from the 1870s well down into the 19-teens. And what happens is here's where you really begin to see the development of a popular theater. Prices are lower, more people can attend. There's massive turnover. There's great demand for scripts and scores. You wouldn't believe how many of these one-act works that were put on. Um, at one point when I was doing the research for the book, I discovered that the National Library of Madrid has a catalog. It's like three volumes, just <laughs> listing the bibliographical entries for all this stuff. Right? There's a lot of these plays out there, most very ephemeral. Right? It's, it's very much like sort of looking at sort of a television, right? It was originally it was designed to be consumed and then forgotten about. Right. Right. This was never an idea they're creating high art. And so, first of all, this politicizes the theater because more people are going in, more people are seeing what's going on. But also, what happens is the very subject of what a zarzuela is begins to change. Um, again, in the 50s and 60s, they'd been these grand romantic three-act dramas. By the middle of the 1880s, especially after the success of two plays in 1886, Zarzuelas become one-act plays about daily life. Uh, the Spanish actually have a specific genre they call this. This is the sainete. Um, no real good English translation there for that. Yeah. Um, but again, the point of the sainete is really these works, they don't have plots. They're really just slight 40-minute slices of everyday life with about three or four musical numbers mm -hmm. interspersed throughout all of these. Um, and, the, the, and what happens is that in 1886, there are two massive hits. One is La Gran Via, which is basically a musical about this idea that they're going to put a major boulevard through the center of Madrid called the Gran Via. They don't get it done until the 1950s, but they were thinking about it in 1886. So they write a whole, and so the composers write a whole musical review about this, right? It's, uh, you, you know, it's like, you know, the streets of Madrid are chorus girls dressed up, uh, petroleum and gaslight are in the, in the, in the chorus. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely wild, but it sort of displays the various types of people who you might see walking down Madrid street. Um, the other big hit uh, a little later on that season is Cadiz, which is a basically a musical representation of the 1812 revolution. And in particular, the whole thing is built around a scene in which the Constitution of 1812 is presented on stage for the people to cheer and applaud. There's also some sort of plot about a guy trying to rescue a girl from a dirty old man, but nobody cares about that, right? It's, it's, not, even, it's not even remotely interesting, which you're going for the songs, the music, and the spectacle. And so these one-act zarzuelas, what the Spanish would call the género chico, or the little genre, to distinguish them from the grand romantic zarzuelas earlier, will dominate the stage really from the late 1880s until about World War I. This género chico, these uh, short zarzuelas, are actually providing a window into the daily life of Madrid at that time. Absolutely. And this is where I, can, I begin to make the argument that they are, they're representative of a way of imagining what Spain is looking like as it is modernizing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we talk about these as Madrid-based plays, and they are. This is the vast majority of them premier Madrid. But they travel around the country. These are staged all over Spain um, in all provincial theaters all around the country. The music extends even more widely, again, thanks to the street musicians, the military bands, some of those other things that I've, I've talked about earlier. 
Um, and so it's a way really for the middle class audiences, the perhaps the slightly wealthier working class audiences that are starting to attend the theater in the 1880s and 1890s. This is sort of their way of beginning to conceptualize what Spanish society is looking like. Mm -hmm. Because life's right there on the stage for them to look at. And that is pretty powerful stuff. You know, again, you might be in a provincial center, but you see on stage what's happening in Madrid, and you begin to see, oh, this is what my country is like outside of my own little, little small town here. So from that sense, this is one of the ways I can say it's, it's very much that idea of sort of another way of imagining community. I mean, that's a hoary old chestnut that, that, that we all refer to from time to time, but it's, there's a reason it's a hoary old chestnut, right? It's powerful. It works. Let's now listen to uh, an example of one of these types of uh, sarsuelas that we've been talking about. This is the Seguida from Federico Chueca's Agua, Azucarrios y Aguardiente. Um, could you start out by just telling us a, a little bit of what's going on in this scene we're going to be playing? Well, actually, the, the first thing to note about this is that Agua Azucarillos y Aguardiente is one of those things where there's really not a plot. The, the, most of the point is that these are the types of people you'd encounter on a summer evening walking down, say, the Paseo de Recoletos in Madrid. Or at least as it was in the 1890s, it's with all the traffic, it's not quite so much fun today, right? right. Um, but but so you meet the you meet you meet the water vendors, you meet the ice cream vendors, you meet the you know you even meet the robbers and, and the muggers and and what have you. Um, and as the curtain goes up, the first thing you hear is a very lively orchestral introduction that is based on a Spanish folk dance called the Segadillas, right, which actually originates from Andalusia. Then you're going to hear a group of children singing. And, of course, what's actually happening on stage is these children are in the park playing games, running around. Uh, people with Spanish will actually hear a few of the children get a little naughty in the, uh, in the lyrics, so you can pay attention to that. Um, and then as the children are playing, they're being attended by their nannies and their nursemaids, who eventually also get to sing. Um, however, they begin singing a lament. They're tired. They would like to go home. They miss their families. Many of the nursemaids and nannies in 19th century Madrid were actually immigrants from Galicia in the northeast of Spain. And you will actually hear them sort of imitate in the orchestra and sort of in their vocal tones bagpipes, which sort of, again, indicates the, the Celtic music that was traditional to the region. And so what you get really is this sort of mixture of three very different types of music. You get a Spanish folk dance. You get children's songs that were actually of the time. Uh, the composer Schweika transcribes them for the children. And then this sort of uh, imitative uh, sound of Galician music to, again, show the various strains of people coming into the city. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Let's listen to the clip.
Okay, so that clip that we listened to was kind of a collection of dances, and I know that's a very important part of the sarsuelas from this period. So um, what made the uh, dances such a key part of these pieces? Uh, dances were actually a really, really important part of uh, leisure life in late 19th century Spain. Uh, basically in an era before recorded music, in an era before radio or cinema or anything like that, the main form of leisure activity uh, for all sorts of people was dancing, going to dance halls, attending open-air dances, verbenas, fiestas, things like this. And this is the way that we really we begin to see daily life incorporated into these arthuelas because almost all the music in the Genero Chico pieces from the 1880s onward is dance music of some sort. Now, in the piece we just heard from Aguatuca Rios de Aguardiente, the dances are Spanish, right? Seguidillas. Um, in many other cases, they would be using Jotas pieces from the colonies like Avenieras, for example. But also, interestingly enough, a lot of the music you hear in these uh, Genero Chico works are dances that are not specifically Spanish. The waltz turns up very frequently. Marzurkas were extremely uh, popular. Polkas, shotishes. And all of these would have been heard in the air in the evening in a, in, a, in a typical Madrid setting from the dance halls, from the bars, from the cafes. And so this is kind of the way in which I can argue that they're creating the aural world of Spain on stage through using this dance music. And what it really goes to show is we know nationalism is a constructed thing. It's right. It's not essential. There's nothing specifically Spanish about you know the Sevillana except that we have deemed it so. Well, in the 1890s, you will see all sorts of references to Spanish-sounding waltzes and mazurkas and polkas and these things. They just accepted that this urban dance music was part of their life and was part of being Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so it comes to form a really integral core to the works that premiere really up up until about World War One or so. And what's interesting to me is that some of these dances are the ones that we might now think of as very typically Spanish, especially from Andalusia, but others are outside of Spain. Yeah, I, actually, it was, it was one, of the, one of the things my grandmother actually read this book. Took her a whole year, but, you know, that's, that, that's okay. Uh, and, and she said one thing she, she learned was she had no idea that, because she, she grew up dancing shortages, for example, and had no idea that they were that popular outside Scotland. So, you know, there you go. It's, it's, it's just another way of naturalizing everything to this big sort of stew pot, if you will. Uh -huh. Yeah, and, and creating or helping to create an identity that is urban and brings in these influences from all different places. Very much so, right? Uh -huh. I, I mean, now, I, again, there are sarthuelas that depict rural life. Um, these especially begin to pop up after the turn of the century. But so many of them are focused on urban settings, a way of sort of introducing Spain to the fact that, yes, their world is changing. Urbanization comes to Spain slowly, it's still a very heavily rural country well into the 20th century, as you know, but it is becoming more urban. It is becoming more industrialized. And these people, too, have to be brought into the concept of a Spanish identity. So let's now talk a little bit as we move into the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries. In the Restoration period, we talked about how earlier there was a link between this urbanization process and the, the politics of the time. But... In the Restoration, uh, there's kind of an effort to 
depoliticize the environment. So how does that context shape the way Sarswell has evolved during the restoration period? Well, basically, what, what you have to understand is that Spain, unlike a lot of other European states, and I'm thinking specifically of England, of France, of Germany after the unification, there is not a really strong state-sponsored project of nationalism, especially under the Restoration. Uh, the politicians after 1874 were looking at the chaos of 1868 to 1874 and said, we don't want to go through that again. And if you nationalize people, it just makes them more likely to want things like voting and democracy, and we can't really have that. So what happens is that really there's sort of this benign neglect, I guess, maybe the best way of sort of uh, explaining it. The Spanish state, you know, they do some things that we would recognize as state building, but it's not really at the top of their agenda. It's not really what's important to them. Most of us are familiar because this is what gives uh, rise and room for things like Catalan nationalism, Basque nationalism begin flourishing. Because when there's nothing coming out of the center, these more bottom-up approaches to nationalism instead begin to develop. And that's kind of what Zarzuela is. It's a popular sense of nationalism. It's not really being determined by state policy of any sort. It's really being determined by what our audience is willing to buy tickets for. Um, and so from that regard, it's very much a bottom-up sense of way of developing national identity. Now, of course, the thing that changes everything is the thing that changes everything for, Span for Spaniards in the late 19th century, and that is the War of 1898. The disaster, which they're trounced by the United States, sort of lose this entire sense of what it means to be a great European power, because they can't even claim that anymore, having been beaten by these upstarts of all things. Yeah. And really what happens is that in the wake of 1898, Sp Spaniards in general, the politicians in particular, begin talking about what do we need to do to reform the country? How are we going to regenerate our society? How are we going to create something new? Many of these uh, plans for regeneration involve copying ideas from outside of Spain, bringing in stuff from the rest of Europe. And what happens is the theater begins to do this too. The Henry Chico is still quite popular after 1898, but in about a decade you begin to see an influx of European operettas coming in from Vienna, coming in from Paris, um, works by uh, composers like Franz Lehar. Right, The Merry Widow, one still popular enough, it even pops up today occasionally. And these are being touted as models for, we need to fix our theater too, because all these it's so childlike to have all these one-act plays that are just built around nothing. Mm. People are, you know, they're saying we have to reform our theater, we have to fix things. And so once again, the nature of what a Tharthuela is begins to change somewhat, especially after the premiere of The Merry Widow in Madrid in 1909. Increasingly, they're going back to the more romantic Tharthuelas. Um, by the 1920s, uh, composers and librettists are beginning to adopt works from classic Spanish literature, especially the, pl the plays of the Golden Age, the 15th and 16th centuries. You suddenly see a lot of Tharthuelas based on Calderon and Terso de Molina plays, for example. They begin to go back to the broad, romantic, lush music, this time more inspired from Vienna rather than from Rome, say, as they had in the 1850s and the 1860s, right? And, and what, what be really begins to pop up is this sort of melange 
of different approaches. Suddenly everything goes in the 1920s. But here's the real interesting thing about this is that the political content, it doesn't really go away, but not surprisingly, especially after 1923 and the establishment of the Primo de Rivera dictatorship, the politics just aren't as popular anymore. Instead, they're focusing on these almost anachronistic works that are sort of reveling in presenting this past that is sort of, you know, benign, that they're showing off great works of Spanish literature. Really, this is the moment at which Zarzuela kind of begins to lose a little bit of its political identity. It doesn't go away completely, mind you, right? That's, it's, it's, it's not gone completely. But, you know, there are too many changes taking place for Zarzuela to remain the same. The other thing that's going on, which I haven't mentioned yet, is that after the turn of the century, there are suddenly a whole bunch of new forms of popular culture that are competing for people's money and time and attention. The movies are the obvious one, right? Mm -hmm. Cinema. Um, sporting events, right? Other plays. The other thing is that after the turn of the century, prices for theaters begin to drop. More people can go and see shows. But part of the reason the prices are dropping is they're trying to keep up with the movies. Okay, so let's now play an example of one of these more operatic uh, Sarcela Grandes.
All right, so from that clip that we just heard, uh, how can we see the European operatic influence there and this return to the Sarsuela Grande style? Well, again, as you can hear, the part of it is just the orchestration. It's much larger, it's much more lush, it's much more romantic in style. Um, this is very much sort of what, say, Puccini and Strauss were doing in the 20s. Starting around the same time in the 1920s, Sarsuela starts to go into a decline. Can you say a little bit more about why that happens in this period? Well, again, as part of as I, I mentioned before, is that there is just all new forms of mass entertainment mm -hmm. that are um, available for people to take part of. Also, by the time we get to the 20th century, many of the most famous composers of the Henry Chico are passing away. Um, you know, I think it's Federico Schweika dies in 1908, Roberto Cepi dies in 1909. There is a rise uh, in the late 1920s of, in popularity of the review, where, where basically you just have people singing random songs and doing skits on stage that's very, very popular. And then I also think by the time we get to the early 1930s, you know, they're still writing all these arthuelas, and they're still attempting to modernize. Right. Um, for example, one of my favorites from the early 30s is a piece called La del Menojo de los Rosas, which is basically about the love affair between a car mechanic and a florist. Right. Very much of up to date. There's a, there's another Sarzuela which figures, you know, in which the climax occurs in the middle of a public defense air raid test. So these Sarzuelas are trying to keep are trying to keep up with the times, but there's this sense that they're a little anachronistic. The lush romantic plots and everything, those don't quite strike a chord, especially after sound film comes in, right? Because suddenly there's a whole new way to view the world, a whole new way to get your entertainment. And then, I mean, I don't know, the 1930s, given the various political factors that were going on in Spain, were probably not the greatest time in the world to be presenting uh, light musical theater. And in fact, a lot of the works from the early 30s, you can tell there's this sort of sense that there's something going on, right? Um, my favorite work from the period, Luisa Fernanda, is all about what goes on during the 1868 revolution, almost as if they're getting ready to fight again. And then, of course, comes July 1936, when really all theatrical production comes to a screeching halt thanks to the Civil War. And it just never really recovers after that. I'm not entirely sure why they do try to write some sarsuelas in the 40s and the 50s. They aren't much heard of these days. And it is sometime during the Franco regime that Sarzuela kind of becomes a nostalgia tour. Mm -hmm. Many of the recordings that we have of these are first made in the 1950s by Spanish companies. In the 1960s, early 1970s, many of these are filmed for Spanish television. And, and again, it sort of there's often this assumption that those films were part of the Francoist project, but that's a story for another day. And today, of course, you can still see South Wales. They're not really writing them anymore, but they do very wonderful, very lavish productions in many places. If you ever get a chance to see a production at the Teatro de la Zarzuela, it is worth going because, again, they, they spare no expense. But it's a little bit like Gilbert and Sullivan today. It's, it's, it's a venue for nostalgia. It's not so much a living, a living art form, which is a great shame. You've been talking about this link between Sarsuela and the development of a national identity in Spain, but I think what's interesting is that 
when Sarsuela died out as kind of a living genre basically in the 1930s is also when you had this real clash of Spain's national identities uh, culminating in the Civil War. So do you think there's any connection between those things? Oh, without a doubt. I, I mean, so, sort of the, and this is something I've been thinking about, especially in the last few years. Uh, the, the book itself was published at the very beginning of 2016. We all know that lots of changes have occurred in the world, especially dealing with nationalism, since 2016. But basically, at the time I wrote the book, I was sort of making this argument that there is a, you know, we've got two ways of approaching nationalism. There's the stuff that is imposed by the state that's sort of top-down. There's the stuff that people desire through popular culture, the sort of bottom-up approach. And I started saying you kind of need the two things to intermingle. Um, and the problem with, in the pro at that time, the argument I was making, the problem with Spain, is that, you know, because of the lack of a top-down approach that just really wasn't there, that, you know, the, the, the bottom-up approach is we're trying to do too many things, right? There, because you look through this, this is our way, like you, if people are being confused, I thought it meant something, and then it meant something else. Well, yeah, that's the point, right? Right. It moves, it changes over time. It means every day things. And we didn't even cover some of the stuff that the, the arguments I make about some of the other, the ways that history is presented, the way that rural Spain is presented. But, you know, we don't have five hours. Right. right? It would be wrong to necessarily say that... Spaniards lacked nationalism or had a weak sense of it. They did, but it was all these bottom-up approaches, right? The Catalan nationalist movement, the Basque nationalist movement, right? Zarzuela is part and parcel of this. But the problem is popular movements like this are not necessarily cohesive, right? Because different people tend to think different things, have different ways of approaching things. Now, again, in, when, I, when I wrote this and sort of was publishing this in 2016, it's sort of like, well, I thought, well, you know, there must be some space between a top-down and a bottom-up approach. And, of course, you look at where top-down approaches can lead you. Nationalism can be very dangerous, whether it's going top-up, bottom-down, however you want to approach it. Uh, when I talk to my students, for example, I, I point out that nationalism really has two faces. One of which is sort of the liberal 19th century nationalism, which is the one I really would want people to embrace, my God. Right, uh, the, the sort of the, the, the Garibaldi approach in Italy, let's unify the country, let's bring people together. Unfortunately, the, the type of nationalism that has actually tended to develop in the late 19th and 20th and 21st centuries has been the exclusionary form where we shove people away, where we create a group identity by creating exclusionary forces. Really, I guess what I'm trying to hope to say with this project, with Sarthuela, is look, people can imagine inclusive, useful, valuable identities. Because again, so much of the popular nationalism that we see today, whether you're in Spain, the United States, or somewhere else, is very, very highly negative, very, very divisive. Much of it driven by popular culture. And I think the story I have to tell shows, listen, it doesn't have to be this way. Now, how we get it back there, I have absolutely no idea. But maybe somebody else can help me figure that out. Yes, but I think just to be aware of that is, uh, is a very important contribution that, that you're making. Uh, yeah, it's self-awareness. It's a beautiful thing when people actually have it. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, bringing on the program, Clint. This has been uh, interesting and I think important conversation and, and one that to have some good music to go along with it. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. Thank you.